Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Straight Talk. I'm one of the co-hosts, Van Gaten, along with Dennis Golfin. Um, I'm in Jacksonville. He's in, uh, I think it's North Carolina, I believe. <laughs> Raleigh. <laughs> Raleigh, six hours from me. Yeah. We'd like to welcome all of you to the show today. And uh, the feedback coming to us from many of you has been very edifying and encouraging and we really appreciate you so this is a good time to get a hold of your friends and just get, ask them to tune in to us and uh dennis has got another announcement he'll make to you concerning he's our he's our technical engineer and uh he's got some good uh news for us but uh, <clears throat> i'm so appreciative of our straight talk in the sense that uh we have a we have a, a not a guest anymore uh mm -hmm. Dr. Elaine Buchanan, uh, professor and uh, military wife. <laughs> and uh, we're so glad she's with us because I I'm a firm believer that not only should we have straight and honest conversation, but I, I, I like the idea, and Elaine, you'll identify with this as too, that I think the, the church and the academy and the culture, those are the three. That's what we need mm -hmm. to see, a real coming together around the church and the academy as we address the culture and hear the culture, uh, I think we have a far better chance. And on this program, I feel like we've got bishops, clergy, professors, pastors, and we got black and white, male and female. And a couple of our, our guests, our regular attendees are gone today because of doctor's appointments and business trips, but they'll be back with us for sure. So I'm gonna, before I, uh, uh, I have uh, our, our technical engineer uh, <laughs> uh, say something to us and maybe uh, make our announcement as well. Dennis? Uh, thank you, Van. Uh, and we're glad to have Elaine on again. I guess we might as well say we have a group of panelists on with us. We don't have any guests anymore, because since we have the same panelists on, uh, we're on with a group of panelists. While I called on our podcast, our panel of experts. So we have a panel of experts. Uh, I, I uh, met with a group this week in Raleigh, uh, some pastors, uh, a few Caucasian pastors, and it came to my attention that everybody's not on Facebook. So I decided to go out and create a podcast for us. And uh, right above this video on our Facebook site is the podcast information. It's at anchor.fm forward slash talk straight. So we have that podcast and we're putting the episodes of our, of our straight talk up into the podcast. We have two episodes up there now. So Dennis, maybe you should say it one more time. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's going to be on anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M forward slash talk straight. Mm. For those of you on Facebook, it's already above. I put the podcast link just above this video that we have posted on Straight Talk right now. But uh, Elaine and all of the other panelists on the podcast, I put last week's podcast on and the week before, and we're gonna to try to put all of the podcasts that we're doing from here forward into the episodes, into our podcast, so we'll reach a larger audience. So the audience that's not on Facebook will be able to reach us on the web. And uh, of course, what Anchor is a podcast app that will let you download it on your phone, you can download it on your tablet and you can uh, enter it on the web so people can be able to listen to us while they're doing other activities. Uh, I got a 
email this morning for one of the pastors I gave the podcast to yesterday, and he was excited about being able to listen because just so happens he's not on Facebook. So I, I gave him the podcast and he's listening to it and he's real excited about the panel and everything that's going on. Um, so Van, I, I agree with you. We're just getting good feedback and um, people are just asking and I've got some Caucasian pastors that the same thing with you they did with me. They asked them, what can we do? How can we communicate? And so it's uh, the, the interest is out there. And I know you're going to have Elaine give some thoughts on all of this. And I heard your three, four things. We do want to welcome all of our Facebook viewers today. And those of you who are commenting and just putting your comments on Facebook. Thank you very much. Van? All right. Well, uh, why don't we just jump right into some of the straight talk. And I'm, I'm not trying to put any pressure on Elaine, but you know, <laughs> she's the PhD scholar. And so I like the pressure. And, uh, you know, I thought about how um, when I was giving a talk today or a lecture this week to a predominantly white church, uh, I explained, uh, Elaine, how we have to be aware of each other, the black and white. We have a different cultural toolbox. And I know you're familiar with that phrase um, taken from the book uh, Divided by Faith. Mm -hmm. uh, the sociologists brought that up, Emerson and Smith. The, the cultural toolbox and how distinct those two toolboxes, the black community has one cultural toolbox, the white community has another toolbox. And if we know that about each other, our communications have a better chance of making it. And we can also talk about the distinctions and uh, maybe balance each other out as a result of that. So uh, Elaine, your comments on that. I think that's a, a brilliant, brilliant concept and a brilliant idea. Um, I also think though that we do have toolboxes, but we don't know what those toolboxes look like and we don't know what is inside those toolboxes. And I think it's important for us to say, oh my goodness, I see you have a toolbox. Why does it look this way? And what's inside there? And how does that help you? And what do you do with those things? Because if we don't take a step back and ask those questions, there isn't going to be a way for us to even come close to understanding what other people are bringing to the table. Mm, mm, you're right. Well, let's just look into the toolboxes a little bit. And I'll, maybe we should start with something we, we both have in you know, our, our toolbox. Uh, you know, from this premise of um, individualism, I think both toolboxes, we all would agree and attest to the fact that we believe in personal conversion, the need to be born again, the, the need to know to come to know Jesus personally, uh, individually. Now, I know, I know in America, we take individualism a little too far as a result of the influence by the Enlightenment period. But at the same time, it is cr crucial that all of us come to know personally our Lord and Savior. Elaine? Yes, yes, I totally agree, 100%. 100%. <laughs> do you know the Lord is your personal Savior, Elaine? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I, well, while you were talking, though, I was thinking about um, individualism, but also the importance of community. Because yes. sometimes those who focus solely on a personal relationship with Jesus um, don't talk about and don't integrate the importance of community. 
Um, so that's what I was thinking about while you were talking. Yeah. And I was right. like, where is he going with this? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I was going to limit it right there. Stop right there and let you <laughs> ad lib. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Having a personal relationship with Jesus is very important. That's going to look a little bit different for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, I have people in my life who, who have said, I've known Jesus ever since I was a child. Uh, but I can't pinpoint a particular day or a particular time uh, when I accepted Jesus as my savior, but I know that he's my savior. And then there, you know, that that's kind of one more um, edge of this. But then mm -hmm. on the other side, we have people who remember the date, the time, where they were at, how they did it, what they said, you know, so we have this, this um, wide variety of what that looks like and how that happens. But yes, having a personal relationship with Jesus is critical. Mm. Well, Ben, I think on, uh, on the lines for me, uh, mm -hmm. what I think Elaine is talking about in terms of individualism and the idea of community is whether or not we approach one or two things. We approach uh, Jesus as our savior as an event. And so we all know that as Christians that happen as an event that make us part of the issue or do we approach it as an experience, which then we denote the day and the time when we had this miraculous experience happen to us, which we call conversion. And then all of a sudden we feel like, oh, we know the day that we were born into the body of Christ. And so I think that for me, uh, and we talk about these toolboxes, I think that that's what happened in terms of Christians. Some identified as an event, some identified as an experience. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, I agree with both of you for sure. And, uh, <clears throat> but I think that I, we started with that in the toolbox with an area where there seems to be a universal acceptance, whether you're in the black church or white church or whatever. Now, if we look at what else in the toolbox, I think that the distinction that needs to be highlighted, and this is where the rub is, this is where the, the uh, discontinuity exists between the two is the reality that the white church evangelicals seem to embrace more uh, another area of uh, interpersonal skills, relationships, interpersonal, re that racism is a result of personal relationships. And all, I agree with this concept that everybody needs to come, to, we need to get together, blacks and whites need to get together, have coffee, see each other face to face, and uh, etc. Uh, but they, but the white church doesn't see the need for social change. They don't see the need for structural racism. They think racism is only on a personal level. And that's where we disagree and uh, where the communication can be skewed. And, uh, but we got to, it's like in our papers, um, the professor would, uh, encourage all of us to put our mm -hmm. operational definitions into our master thesis at least please so um mm -hmm. professor what do you think that we're missing each other between interpersonal relationship is a total thing and social the need for societal change to be taking place at the same time from the black church's perspective Mm -hmm. And I, I think part of that goes back to within the black community, there is this emphasis on relationship with each other, no matter what, you know, so if you are part of the body of Christ, if you come to my church, you are my family, period. doesn't mm -hmm. matter who you are, what your background is, you are part of my family. 
-hmm. And I see that a lot within the black community. Whereas uh, my personal experience within the white community tends to be very different than that. It's okay. So great. You love Jesus. So now you have to be like this and this and this and this, and have to say these things, do these things. And it, it's like, you're trying to fit the expectation almost. And not every church is like that. I'm just talking about my own uh, personal experience. And if you don't fit within that paradigm, then that's when all of the gossip, all of the, you know, all the things that you're not supposed to participate in um, as a believer, all of that comes out. And so it's happening within the white evangelical church is that people are leaving in droves because they're realizing I need community and this isn't community, but I can find this community in this context. Mm. Um, you know, and, and that could be a, um, a biracial church or um, a minority church of any sort, but white people are going to those churches in droves because they're starting to realize, you know what, I just need to be loved for who I am and I need to love other people for who they are. And we need to figure out how we're going to do this together. And you just don't see that quite as much, generally speaking within white evangelical um, communities. Mm -hmm. I think, um, as you mentioned that too, that uh, when I've approached a lot of white churches, one of the things I did like was the emphasis that they always called me brother. They never mm -hmm. dealt with us in terms of title, brother. How are you brother? It was always this affectionate thing of brother, but especially in the church and they hug you and they love on you, but going to get coffee or going to eat, Yes. That was a whole different different animal. You know, it wasn't that kind of socialization uh, that went on. I ministered, I ministered on, I mentioned on one of our earlier programs a few months ago that I went to this um this white conference and um I ministered. First of all, when I got off the plane, they had a placard. This is back in the nineties. And um they didn't think my name, they didn't think I was black when I came and they booked me, but that because my name is Goffin. I guess they thought it wasn't a black name. So the guy was surprised when he when he put the sign up at the airport. And then I came to the sign. He said, you? <laughs> this is me. So when I got there and ministered, it was predominantly a Caucasian audience. And um, I ministered, ministered to be very effective. Then people came up for prayer. It was there that I saw the line tremendously. These white ministers came up and blocked me from going down and putting my hands on people. <sighs> and pushed me back, like, you know, we got this part. And I was like, wow, okay, this is interesting. I could speak to them, but I couldn't minister to them. Well, that's interesting, Dennis, that you share that because, um, uh, you know, one time I was ministering in Cardiff, Wales. Mm. And if you've ever read the book, uh, Reese's Hall Intercession, you know, the great revival that came to Wales, yes. uh, so much so that they testified that even their mules in the coal mines and stuff, they could no longer use them anymore because they were used to cussing at them. But uh, people were crawling up the street from bars to the church to give their hearts to Jesus. It was such a move of God. Yes. But what I found interesting uh, uh, was that when I preached, I was the first black preacher in Cardiff, Wales. And, mm. and I was at Assembly of God Church, by the way, Elaine. And... Uh, uh, after I got through preaching, uh, I made it to an altar call and they all just sat there, you know. And so my the pastor had to get up next to me and say, it's all right to come forward. Uh, you know, he's a man of God, you know. And sure enough, that then they started coming because 
Well, they had never come to the altar to have a black man pray for them. And it took their pastor coming up and saying, it's okay, it's okay. But, you know, that's, that's uh, just the experience that I had as well. But, but the point that I really wanted to get at was, you know, uh, the, the white church also on this toolbox, they don't, where they hold everything on an individual level, an individual, that they don't see systemic racism. Right. And here's where the rub is. When black folks bring up systemic racism as part of the reason for some of the things that happen, mm -hmm. uh, the white church interprets that as an excuse for personal mm -hmm. sins. You need to own it. You need to be responsible and quit blaming it on somebody else. And the black church is going, no, that's a systemic problem that your folks started. And it's affecting, it's exacerbating maybe my already fallen human nature. But I mean, come on. And so right there is a rub that's got to be dealt with between the two for, for true reconciliation to take place. Okay. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Elaine? Okay, all right. Um, I, I agree with that. And here's from my perspective where I, I kind of think that we're at. I think because we are so focused on individuals and I don't treat people this way. And I have lots of friends and you know all of those things, which mm -hmm. I do too. Uh, but the reality is that some of us work at levels where we can make changes, where we can see those things and where we can... Uh, make a difference in those areas. And so, and I don't think we really understand what systemic means. And from, from my own understanding, systemic means it's something that's embedded in the system. It's not something that one person did yeah. or maybe even a, a series of people. It's, it's embedded in the system. And so you have to adjust the system. And the only people who can do that are those who are at the top yes of the system mm -hmm. so you and i can talk about it all day long and we can say this is wrong and we need to make changes at the same time i personally am not in a position where i can affect personally affect systemic change i know lots of people who are and i'm hoping that they listen that they take the time to say okay what exactly is what, what does the word systemic mean? And what does that look like? Because it is racism, it is sexism, it's all different kinds of isms, but you know, all, all people like me can do is talk about it and say, this is real and we need to pay attention to these things. And if it's in a governmental system and we have the opportunity to vote, we need to be voting. You know, so there are all different kinds of things that we can do, even if we're not in that position to, to personally affect systemic change. But, um, you know, uh, Elaine and Van, isn't this what the protests are about? To try to get the system to change? And um, protesting, I mean, not that the protest is going to change anything, but we're trying to move those at the top who make the laws, who make the uh, regulations to sort of change. Um, you know, the priest brutality is one thing, but the training and the system itself and uh, we get to the criminal justice system. You know, there's a disproportionate there in terms of uh, the people of color who are being uh, criminalized and being incarcerated more so than others. And then uh, crimes that are improportionately being judged, uh, judges even looking at the system and then taking this whole 
uh, uh, result. Someone sent me a small video clip of this young um, black man was making an example of the difference between a butterfly and a spider. And he was saying that, what do you do with the butterfly? You know, you, you let it fly, but a spider, you, you, you crush. And his point was that, how does people see you as a butterfly or a spider? If you're a spider, all they want to do is crush you. And, and so his point was that every time that the, uh, those in power look at black people, they just see him as a spider and not as the butterfly. Mm. And so uh, that's a good analogy. I like that little story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is the, this is the area where I think too, that uh, the preachers in the pulpit, not only protests, but I think uh, we need preachers in the pulpit, black and white, to address systemic or systems of racism. Like in America, there are over 1,200 um, think tanks in this nation that affect national public policy. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a good area for, uh, for the body of Christ to be aware of, black and white, and to influence the people who make up these institutes or think tanks of public, national public policy. And one of the things, I was just reading this morning a book, uh, I was, can't think of the author's name again right now, but it's, it's on um, Jim Crowism, mm. a guide to Jim Crowism, right? And I think the author's name, is, but, but, but it starts out, it talks about like the KKK, you know, being the, uh, the they, they believe America is the white man's country. This is the white man's country. And uh, that the Republic was established by white men for white men. And they actually took an attitude of, uh, uh, we, just because we've allowed other minorities to live here, understand that we have a mandate, a mandate to maintain this particular society. Now, that's the whole basis of systemic racism right there, you know, that is really espoused uh, blatantly uh, by the KKK. But Jim Crowism was, you know, it, it was, it was, it was, a, it was, ru it was rules put out by policy that um, when it comes to transportation, blacks ride in the back. When it comes to uh, restaurants, uh, blacks don't eat at the main counter. When it comes to drinking fountains, uh, blacks only use this fountain. Well, that's, that's systemic. I mean, when it comes to living, you only live in this neighborhood. Uh, that's not somebody personally telling me not to drink out of a fountain because that would have caused a fight right there. Uh, you know, one person telling me, well, we'll let the mm -hmm. best man win here. We'll see who drinks. But, <laughs> but, but, but when the whole system tells you you can't drink there and the military or the police show up to arrest you for drinking, that's a different ball game. And I think that's what the white church has to really look at to understand systemic. I think there's a proverb uh, where it says, um, the pro in Proverbs, it says, uh, Lord, don't give me too much or I'll forget you, but don't give me too little lest I steal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and that, that, there's a lot of truth in that, but I'll let Elaine jump back in here on that thought. <laughs> As you were talking, one of the things that, that I was thinking about was I was never, ever exposed to anything like that until my husband was doing his chaplain officer basic class in um, South Carolina. And I went to visit for the, his last week of training and we actually went on some tours and I actually saw for the first time um, 
different water fountains. And I, and I looked at my husband and I said, this is real. This is real. Oh my goodness. You know, I, I had read about it in history books. I had seen documentaries, all that kind of stuff. But when you actually see it, and then when you go on it on tours, Mm-hmm. you know, of different forts and things and you hear it, it's, oh my goodness. Yeah. This is part of the way, and, and, and I looked at him and I said, this is part of the way people think here. I would not last here. I would get in so many arguments and so many fights about this. And I said, I, yeah, I was mad. <laughs> I was mad. And I was also disappointed. And it's, you know, it's no one person's fault, but I had not ever ever seen that to understand it mm-hmm. and it's different when you uh you know when you're watching documentaries or reading about it as opposed to actually seeing it and being with a person live who is saying these things and then you realize oh my goodness there really is this big massive divide here and it's so tense and in, in um in that part of the country at least it was several years ago um and so I think some of us have just not been physically exposed mm. to the point where we need to be. I'm not saying that's everybody because that is totally, totally not true. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we are a product of our culture. We are a product of our families. And so if someone grows up with a certain mentality, that's all they know. And they don't know any different. Um, that's not excusing by any stretch of the means. Um, you know, not at all. At the same time, though, that that matters. And I think that that's what we're dealing with, you know, on a uh, on a really large scale is we have so many people who have never been exposed, personally exposed to racism. They've never had to see it. They've never had to watch it. You know, maybe they've never seen monuments. And so they're thinking this really isn't a problem. And yes, it's an individual thing, but it's not a problem because I've never seen it and I've never experienced it at that level. Wow. I think that um, as we're talking about the experience, I want to get back to your toolbox, um, Van, because you mentioned several components of this toolbox. And one you mentioned was was, uh, getting to the academic field too which I think is becoming a little more loose than um, some of the others, but you mentioned four toolboxes there. Could you rehearse those again? Say that again? You mentioned four components of a toolbox that you were well, saying. Well, uh, two for each uh, culture. Right, right, okay. Uh, personal and then uh, interpersonal relationships for the white church and then personal conversion for the black, but structural racism is the other tool that we operate from. And that's where the rub is between the interpersonal of the white toolbox and systemic racism of the black toolbox. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a good analogy. And my, my point being in, ter- in terms of that, then that means that we're all looking through different lens. Yes. Which I mentioned a little earlier. And if we're all looking through different lens, then we're also uh, not seeing anything uh, and I, th- I think that um, we get back to the question that was asked of Jesus when, when the Pharisees asked him, just who is my neighbor? And he gives the, uh, the parable of the Samaritan who helps the man on the side of the road. And, and we see basically this whole idea of whether or not right now, uh, who, just who is our neighbor? Especially if we are 
uh, Christians and in a Christian community, and my only my neighbors are only people of my same race or people of my same uh, ethnic background, or is, uh, are we neighbors because we all believe in Jesus Christ as being our Lord and Savior? So uh, we get to that point in terms of the the church look at that. Um, if we're all Christians and we all believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and if the New Testament's message is this love, how can you love me whom you've never seen and hate your neighbor whom you see every day? Then the question is then, who is my neighbor? Mm -hmm. uh, is that other person really my neighbor or not? And I think that's where the conversation <clears throat> needs to go and discuss about this idea of community. Well, uh, before we jump into the community, at least my thoughts <laughs> is that, uh, you know, I, I, I go back, you know, I love Soren Kierkegaard's phrase, uh, life is lived going forward, understood looking backward. And I think before we can go forward, you have to take a thorough look back. And I, the question that comes to my mind, and I'm not saying I have the answer, but this is a question. When we see so many uh, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ coming from England to settle in this country, who claimed Christianity as their faith, uh, I know there were Protestants and Catholics that came initially, but they all claimed they loved the Lord and you know knew God and believed in the word of God. And I just find it interesting that somehow a doctrine got involved where we were less than. We were not a part of that family of God. I mean, that's where the rub to me is personally, is that the scholars uh, and philosophers uh, and sociologists uh, all got into this that we were less than as Black folks. We were not the image of God, the Imago Dei. We weren't included in that, and therefore they could justify uh, Jim Crow and everything else because we were less than and not equal to them. And somehow they sink, they they sink, they run into sink these two views: Christian, but this group of people, who's my neighbor? Well, not this guy because mm -hmm. he's not exactly human. <laughs> exactly the imago day. That's something we've got to talk about. And, and I would like to see personally the, the white church own that. I'm not blaming anybody in the present for what happened in the past, but any residue from the past that is being exhibited in the present, we are accountable for. And, and as Elaine brought up, you know, we can be guilty of what's called, uh, it's called culpable incapacity, blame worthy ignorance. <laughs> and, you know, if I speed down the highway and I'm doing 80 and a, the state trooper pulls me over, God forbid, uh, he pulls me over and says, you know, the speed limit was only 65. So I didn't know, officer, he's still going to write me that ticket, right? <laughs> and in America, we have this culpable incapacity, blame worthy ignorance. But why, why, why would we? I, I know this is part of the fallenness too, but I'll, I'll stop right there and let Elaine jump in. But this is a real rub for me personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think part of this goes back to, and you guys can help me with this because you know more, a whole lot more about this than I do. But it goes back to um, specific passages in scripture that back in the day were interpreted to treat others who do not look like me as less than. Whereas um, I believe that there was... Um, 
another book. And this is where I'm going to need your help because I, I know this much about it. You guys know a whole lot more than I do. But where scripture was interpreted to be um, hopeful for the black community. Yes. And to bring peace. About black. Yes. Yes. Okay. So this whole situation where for the majority church is focused on you are chosen by God, you are his holy people. And if someone is not part of you, well, then they need to, you know, they are um, destined for hell and you know, all the, all those things, which eesh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, but then within the black community, because there was already segregation there, scripture brings hope, it brings peace, it brings, you know, eventually Jesus is going to save us, he's going to deliver us, and in the meantime, he's right here with us, with us, which is to totally, two totally different vantage points and approaches to scripture. And uh, one of the things that I always tell my students is scripture is written from the majority perspective. Uh, if you're looking at reading through the Old Testament, it's the elites in society because they're the ones who can read and write. And so they're coming from their perspective, you know, and it's going to come from the Southern kingdom of Judah's perspective, you know, and, um, you know, even when you go to, to the New Testament, you know, it's the people who could read, who could write, who uh, understood a variety of things. And they are, they were the, uh, the elites, essentially. Um, even those who were in the lower classes, if they could read and write, they're elites. You know, and so it's always coming from that particular vantage point, which is why I think it's so important to, especially within narrative, to take a look at the more uh, minor characters and take a look at, at the story from their vantage point because what happens is the majority perspective um, basically says, I am right, what I believe is correct, the way I'm presenting this is 100% accurate. And we're missing out on so much of the narrative of the story of the fuller picture of things. And we see that regularly in scripture, which is so sad. And so I'm trying to train my students to look at these things um, and to look from uh, a, uh, a more minor character in the story's perspective. And I think we're finding something very similar now in American culture where we're realizing there's a whole lot of history that we haven't been privy to, that we don't know about, and now we have access to it. So what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is, I guess, the whole emphasis on Black history, mm -hmm. and seeing some things being written the right way. Um, I put a post on another uh, group page the other day in reference to John Wesley uh, attempting to get the Anglican Church to constantly uh, consecrate the bishops that he was pulling in his new movement, the Methodism, and he couldn't. They would never consecrate uh, the bishops, so he finally consecrated Cokesbury and uh, Ashbury and sent them to America and they became very successful in setting up the Methodist movement, but they wouldn't immediately, but we don't get that whole tale. And we don't get, even in black history, there are a lot of stories we're getting to now undercutting and finding out what's going on in our black history. Uh, there are more scholars now who are writing, uh, black scholars who have uh, gotten into the academic field dug into and found some information and now they're trying to publish works and 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 i know friends around me are going wow where did that come from 
and wear that on. And while I'm mentioning that, I do want to mention uh, Van's book again. I'm sure he's got it around somewhere because uh, he's been getting a lot of attention on that. And there it is, the good news for racism. And uh, I shared it with some, some guys to get it on Amazon the other day. And I think it's important that we, uh, his book and other books like it, we need to kind of deal with the underlying problem. And as you meant, mentioned, the underdog. And I think that's where we are, we are now. There's this whole underlying story in every culture that is just not being shared because of the fact that, you know, they're not educated. Just think of the Pentecost. On Pentecost, it says they took notice of them that these were unlearned men, <laughs> and, um, but, they had, but they had been with Jesus. So it, it was a, a matter of interpreting where Christians were from experience, not necessarily from education. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Dennis, for uh, bringing up my book again, but uh, <laughs> I certainly don't limit this to my book. I made a list this morning of some books that I think are really uh, crucial in our in the whole contest because the, the whole uh, conversation because uh, I use always use the phrase those who read lead mm -hmm. and how important it is that we know history and that we learn to do our research in understanding an issue. I was once with a student one time I was a high school principal at a private uh, college preparatory high school in the gated communities of Jacksonville here. So these were rich kids. And one of the rich white boys came up to me, his father was a big lawyer here in Jacksonville. He says, uh, and his final question to me was this. He said, Dr. Gayton, uh, wouldn't you like to go back to the good old days? That was his <laughs> question. I said, good old days? You talking about the middle passage with all the slaves? You talking about auction blocks? You talking about the plantation fields? are you talking about Jim Crow and segregation? Those good old days? And he turned totally red, you know? And I said, man, I'm just messing with you. I said, but that, that triggered a thought to me is that, you know, again, it comes back to these two histories that many whites came over here for the American dream, but the blacks came over here out of the nightmare, the American nightmare for us. And in order for America to be whole and reconciled, especially in the church world, uh, we are very familiar with their story of the American dream. We, we got that. I said all, as I posted, I've never had a black teacher in my life. Every teacher I ever had was white. And, mm -hmm. and, and many of them were, were super. They were good, you know. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I say to white preachers and, and uh, educators, I say, have you read black authors and have you read history in America from our perspective. And if you don't, then your picture is myopic. You're not complete yet. You, you are missing something that is vital to the health of this nation that will never be healed uh, or whole. So anyhow, uh, uh, books I put down like Color Compromise by uh, 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 Tisby, uh, Reading While Black by Esau McCauley, uh, White Too Long by Robert Jones, that's another good book. And then uh, Divided by Faith by Emerson and Smith. Uh, these are nice books that if anybody wants to have a little, a little treasure, treasure trove of a, a library of things that will help get their understanding and challenge and cleanse them, these are books that they could be reading that would lay a foundation 
for progress in this nation. Because I agree with Elaine, especially reading the minorities in the text. You know what I found out, Elaine, was she does a Monday morning muse on Facebook. I think everybody should listen to it because in 15 yeah. minutes, she'll make you feel like a scholar. <laughs> and uh, so she does good. She does an excellent job. But one time she was sharing about what you brought it up, Dennis, about the uh, Good Samaritan. And I noticed at the end of that parable that uh, the Jewish guy couldn't say the Samaritan. He said, he that shows mercy, he that has shown mercy. But he didn't come out and say the Samaritan because there was still prejudice, sanctification that needed to take place in his heart. Absolutely. I'll stop right there, uh, Elaine. <laughs> and, and, and that's very true. And that's part of the reason why I love that story, because it exposes the depths of our hearts and the depths of our soul, because everybody, everybody has bias and prejudice. It does not yes. matter who you are, the color of your skin, everybody has it. Yes. And in that particular parable, if we put ourselves in the place of that scribe, uh, and normally the people that Jesus is talking to, they're a character of some sort within the parable itself. So he's bringing them into, into his story. And for this scribe who is holy, who is a leader, uh, who's a religious leader in the community, who has influence over the religious leaders within the community, this person who um, knows the history, knows the Old Testament, like probably like the back of his hand or pretty close to it. And for him to, for Jesus to come all the way to the end of this parable and to have him ask, you know, you know, so, you know, who, who, who's the neighbor here? You know, who, how do you love your neighbor here? And for him to, to not be able to say the word Samaritan is very telling mm -hmm. because what's happening within the story is it's the rejected person. It's the person who is being treated as less than who actually does the caring. Yes. Who actually helps the person who is in need. Good and it's also, and it's also likely that people who were like him, you know, we have a, the uh, the um, priest and Levite that walk by. So people who are like him just mm -hmm. walk right on by. And so what does it mean to love your neighbor? It means to be, to be rejected by someone else and choose to love them anyway. Mm, and it yeah. also means to accept that love and that acceptance from someone who you may not be okay with. And so it goes both ways within this parable. And that is so, it's hard to grapple with for anybody. Oh. Uh, if anybody says this is easy and I've got this and I'm great at this, they're lying. Because okay. this is, you know, there's always somebody or a group of somebodies or, you know, that we just, we may say that we love, but we may not realize that we don't until Jesus gives us a parable like the Good Samaritan. And then, boy, it's a, it's a punch in the gut. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine and, and Van, we're getting some interesting remarks on Facebook underneath of where we are. And, and you guys need to check them out later. But right on Facebook, people are just remarking. And they're finding it interesting. So we want to thank all of our Facebook viewers for just interacting with us. And here and there enjoying this discussion and it's yes. been it's it's been great by the way i put up samaritan uh, illustration because i did see your monday music 
So <laughs> that was that was why I brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching it too. So oh, it's, thank it's, you. It's been great. So I, I think that we need to, uh, as we interact and get these things together, I think it's it's an, it's important. And just to see that whole line of discussion, uh, it, it gets back to who it is. You know, um, Van brought up something in the beginning about individualism. And, and now it gets to the point where it doesn't matter uh, about the truth itself. What we become uh, to look at is who is it bringing us the truth? And, and so in, in that case, who is it that's showing me kindness? It's not that the kindness was there, but who is the person doing it? So the individualism, we get to the point, and I think what we are here and discussing is whether or not the person is elitist enough to have the truth versus the fact if you got the truth, but what is your status? Uh, to me, it's like in, in, in um, Matthew 22 when, when Jesus had gone in on Palm Sunday and he goes in the temple and he heals the man. Then later he's standing, he's sitting there and the Pharisees are asking him, they can't discount the miracles he's done. They can't discount the popularity of the crowd. So then they come with one other important question they thought they could get him on, knowing he hadn't been to any rabbinical schools of the day. So they said, by what authority do you do this? And so it almost comes down to the point of who are you as an individual basis, rather, what are you saying that may be truth, regardless of who you are as an individual? And, mm. and I, I just wanted to point yes. out. Yes. Well, you know, uh, the other thing, too, that Elaine, is uh, I was reading another scholar, and I can't think of her name right now, but <clears throat> she was saying how imagine if the Good Samaritan if the gentleman that he helped on the road woke up and saw himself being helped by a Samaritan, he might have spit in that Samaritan's face. Yes, yes, so, yes. So the Samaritan was willing to help him, knowing that this guy would probably wake up calling me names. I mean, yes. because, but you know, on the other side of the coin, how Jesus pushes all of us, because here's the reality. Yes, uh, yes all of us can be our prejudice. All of us mm -hmm. have biases even though only white American can be racist because they've been the dominant power. Yes. But we are all guilty of sin regardless. And it is Jesus. I like how John chapter four, when I, and this has always been in my heart uh, from the beginning of writing my dissertation, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said to them, I must needs go by Samaria. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the Lord is, if you're going to follow the Lord, he wants to take us through this situation. He wants mm -hmm. us to go to our neighbor, our friend that we just have no time for. The spirit of God will push us towards people that we consider persona non gratis. We do not want anything to do with them. We think we're better than them. And God is pushing us in this nation towards each other to be reconciled, we've got to face this issue. It's painful. It hurts. Um, so, some are struggling. They've got to humble themselves, you know, where they've been condescending. And then we got to be more forgiving towards those who have, who have oppressed us. And, and our hearts both can be filled with hatred. And, mm -hmm. and Jesus is pushing us to get this thing right because he is the father of us all and he wants all his children to get along with each other elaine that's right yes yes i agree 100 percent. one of the things that um that you brought up um while talking was um i just blanked out 
that's not good. I hate it when that happens. Um, Wait till you get older. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on no coffee yet for the day. Yeah. Can I do that? Is it okay to have permission to do that? Okay. Um, oh, what was I going to say? I'm so sorry. I just totally blanked out. Uh, can, you, can you summarize just well, real briefly? In Samaria, he pushed us. Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay. okay. So one of the things about that story where Jesus meets the woman at the well yeah. is culturally speaking, culturally speaking, this is a sexual advance. It is. You can read all different kinds of, of uh, books that put it in their culture, and that is something that it is. So Jesus takes a risk of being accused of sexual advance to reach this woman yes. who desperately wants, she's hungry. She wants a relationship with God. She wants to understand, and she's smart. Mm -hmm. She's brilliant. She, she knows her background. She knows... Um, you know, her, her history, she, she knows all of these things. And yeah. we don't know why she was married, you know, so many different times and now living with this other man. We don't know that. We make a lot of assumptions. We don't know for sure. But what Jesus does is he takes the risk of being falsely accused in order to reach this woman who then goes back to her community. And what's interesting and what we don't talk about is she would have been deemed as very much less than within her culture. Yet mm -hmm. somehow people listen to her. Mm -hmm. People listen to her. And then they come and they meet Jesus. You know, and you've got his disciples who are, who are um, you know, part of watching part of this happen, going, what in the world is he doing? Does he not realize the risks that he's taking to do this? Mm -hmm. And I think for all of us, um, it may be important to take some cultural risks to yeah. uh, to step beyond what is culturally acceptable as long as it is not illegal but let me let me make it clear too don't want to do anything illegal but but stepping beyond our normal cultural boundaries to watch and see what god does because it may change us just as much if not more than it changes the person or the people that we're interacting with Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that is so powerful. And, and for me, um, I'm tired of being viewed as a prodigy in my race. I don't know about Van, but sometimes when I'm meeting a lot of Caucasian guys and, and they get into where I'm at, it's almost I'm viewed as a prodigy. Like all the rest of my race may not be like me. I'm just this one that stands out. And so they can accept me as a, as a prodigy. I'm not a prodigy. There's a lot of guys like me. There are a lot of people who are smart who maybe in my culture that you don't know about, but the way you accept our culture is to pull out a prodigy and, and then um, say, oh, you know, this, this guy, you know, this guy, you know, well, what about all the other guys? <laughs> right. mm -hmm. So it's, it becomes that sort of thing of acceptance. I hear in these stories of the Samaritan and the woman at the well and, and family, you know, the people come and they discount her at the end, just like the Samaritan. They say to her at the end, now we're not here just because of what you said, but now we've heard him for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So now they're discounting the woman at the end, again, even though she's the messenger that actually got them to Jesus. But now that they hear Jesus for herself, they don't want to give her any more credit. It's like, you know, now we, we, we heard not just your word, but we've heard him for ourselves. And so now it's just discounting again, putting her back into a social class where she was because you don't want to deal from that life. 
-hmm. Yes. You know, it was William Barclay in his uh, commentaries. He talks about when Jesus was being born, he, he, uh, that racism and prejudice and clashes of cultures is not a new issue, just America. This has been, since Jesus was born on planet Earth, it, it had been going on. For instance, William Barclay says, the Jews did not like the Romans. The Romans didn't like the Greeks. The Greeks didn't like the Romans. The Greeks and the Romans didn't like the Jews. The Jews in the North didn't like the Jews in the South. Uh, the Jews in the North and South didn't like the Samaritans in between. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews in the North or the South. And into this atmosphere, Jesus was born and the angel announced joy to the world for the Lord has finally come. And I think... I think that we, we, we cannot forget that part of the message because I think that is our energy. That's our source of strength is that as corrupt as our, and fallen as our world is, and this place is a mess right now in America, we've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. We've got to look to him. And yet keeping our eyes on the Lord means he will take us to Samaria. <laughs> we're going, we're going, he, if we're following the Lord, he is going to take us by because God is concerned about all of humanity. He loves all his children and he wants all his children to get along and he's got to cleanse our hearts and we've got to run the risk as Jesus did of being seen and, and even appear as Uncle Tom's as we use that phrase incorrectly, by the way, Uncle Tom was a good man. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote that book to convince the slave states that they needed to change their ways. That was the per her message. In fact, Lincoln walked up to Harriet Beecher Stowe and said, so this is the woman who started the Civil War, you know. But anyhow, to Uncle Tom, you can be viewed as an Uncle Tom. You know what that means, Dennis, that, that, yeah. that you know, you cross too, too far to the other side and think, oh, you're over there now. You're over there. But we've got to follow Christ in this. And only the risk takers, only the courageous, only the loving will make this journey and the Lord will lead his people to unity, to reconciliation, to harmony for the glory of God. Well, Lane, we've got, we've got about four or five minutes left. I'm gonna let you have the last word and, and uh, Van's gonna give us our benediction as he always does. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, um, I think this conversation has been um, very, very good. It's also been very telling that there's so much work that all of us need to do. And I think the one word that has come up in different ways is taking risks um, and the cost of taking those risks. Yes. You know, am I willing to learn a history that isn't my own? Um, am I willing to try to become friends with someone who looks different than me? You know, am I willing to uh, engage in this incredibly difficult conversation? And it's difficult for everybody. And I think sometimes we forget that. It's not easy for anybody right. to talk about these things. Um, but it's so important to engage and to ask those questions and to listen and to learn. I know for the past three weeks, this is the third week that I've been on here every single week. 
I've learned something that I didn't know before. Uh, and that is so important because then I can take that and I can allow that to settle into my heart and into my spirit. And I can take that and use it for good. And I'm hoping that other people who are watching this and who are engaging in conversation about these things can learn something new or learn something a little bit different and then take it, let it sink into their hearts and their spirits too, and allow it to help them in their own conversations and interactions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. And just before you give the benediction, I do want to mention again, our podcast, uh, those of you at right underneath or in the notes here, I've got the podcast link. Uh, you can share it with your friends, your neighbors, look at it on your phone, I mean, rather listen to it on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer, and there's also a support button on there so you can support our efforts as we try to spread this program more and more and, and get people involved in what we're doing. So we want to thank you for listening. Thank you for all those who are viewing with us today on, on our Zoom and on Facebook. And for those of you who are just commenting in our thread on Facebook, uh, we, we appreciate you. We appreciate your comments and we appreciate all that you've done. Uh, Van, uh, thank you, Elaine, for the day. Yes, uh, uh, three other people that are usually on our panel will be back next week. So there'll be about six or seven of us next week. And but I appreciate everybody that's tuned in, and it's certainly good to see you and Elaine today as well. But I just want to close in prayer by saying to everybody yes, we need to be risk takers, but we need to follow the Lord. Yes, and know that one of the practical applications of following the Lord is He's going to take us by Samaria. The people you do not like, do not accept, feel better than uh, Jesus is going to take every one of us to that neighborhood, to that city to that place for his glory and his honor. And I pray that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he'll help each one of us today. So let me pray for everyone. So Father, indeed, take us by Samaria, change our hearts, give us the boldness by the power of your Holy Spirit to go to those places. And now audience, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon each one and give you shalom in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. God bless you.